everyone can hear me fine? Yes. Excellent, wonderful. Let me uh, flip this round. Okay, so I'm going to start by telling you all an interesting story, all based on real-life events. In fact, much like my book, it's non-fiction. So um, about a year and a bit ago, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, you may recognize his name, Nikesh Shukla. He's the editor of a very successful anthology which I contributed to called The Good Immigrant. Um, about a year and a bit ago, he teamed up with a, another author named Sunny Singh. And they sort of looked at what was happening in British publishing uh, and they looked at who was being nominated and long-listed for prizes and who was winning literary prizes and who was being published in general. And they noticed a real problem. They, they noticed a massive problem. And the problem was, overwhelmingly, all of those names, those who were being long-listed, short-listed, winning, overwhelmingly, uh, those authors were white. Uh, and they thought that that was a crying shame because, you know, being in the networks that they were in, they knew plenty of like talented non-white authors in Britain. So they decided to set up a literary prize and they called it the Jalak Prize. And I think that was the first year of it. It's a very recent literary prize. And the aim was simple. They wanted to celebrate writers of color in Britain, British born writers of color in particular. So they went ahead, they, they put it together. Um, it got lots of coverage and you know, the trade magazine, the bookseller, Everything was fine and dandy. But, but almost immediately, um, it ran into some controversy. But, but first, I want to tell you about like, the context in which they're putting this literary prize together. So the bookseller uh, did some research, I think, at the beginning of this year, maybe the end of last year, in which they, they basically just collated data. And it was difficult because publishers weren't collating um, the race of the uh, authors that they were publishing. Um, so they just had to guess in some circumstances. But the bookseller pulled together numbers on exactly who was being published in Britain, because I think that's, you know, who's being published is an indication of who the industry thinks is talented, right? Uh, and the bookseller found that of the thousands of titles that were published by British publishing houses in 2016, a tiny fraction, so fewer than 100, were by non-white British authors. So yeah, we had Claudia Rankine and Ta-Nehisi Coates and you know, British readers were feeling hugely inspired by them, but the, the ground was not really being fertile for homegrown non-white talent. And that was a context in which um, Nikesh and Sani put together this literary prize. I, I think that's pretty uncontroversial, don't you, right? Like, let's celebrate some underrepresented voices. So they launched this literary prize into the ether. And they said to publishers, nominate any kind of book. We're not being restrictive here. It can be a cookery book. It can be a children's book. It can be whatever, as long as it's by an author who isn't white, based on the fact that they're so underrepresented in the industry. So the first controversy that it ran into was um, the author Shappy Corsandi, the author and comedian, um, on being nominated by the prize, immediately told her, her publisher to take her name out of it. She didn't want to be involved. And her reasoning, um, when she, at least this is what was quoted in the press, was she felt that um, her being long-listed or short-listed for this particular prize was just simply tokenism. It was not going to be about her talent. It was going to be solely just because she was brown. An interesting conclusion to draw, I think, when you look again at the, the landscape of the issue, which is gross underrepresentation and a situation in which she has already a bit of a profile being a comedian before she was an author. 
But anyway, that was a bit of a set setback for the Jalak Prize organisers, and they just decided to soldier on, stay optimistic, etc., etc. Then a few days before um, they were about to announce the winner of the prize, I met with Nikesh. Um, my book was just about to come out, and he was really, he was slumped, he was... He looked really unhappy, and I was like, Nikesh, what's going on? What's the matter? Like, Nikesh has got the energy of a newborn puppy, usually. So this was really, it was really unusual to see him like this. And he said, Rennie, we've had a letter from the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And um, they said that they've had a complaint from an MP. Um, they wouldn't say which MP. I knew. I knew. Um, this MP says that the prize is racist towards white people, um, and... Uh, they want the Equality and Human Rights um, Commission to investigate it. And because the Equality and Human Rights Commission is um, obliged to take forward any complaints, wherever they may be, even though only a particular kind of person is going to know how to put in a complaint, your layperson isn't going to know how to do that, they were now being investigated. And the commission didn't say, oh, you've broken the law, but it was just, we've had this complaint, now we need all this data from you to people drastically under-resourced two people. Basically, put your day jobs to one side and defend, explain to us and defend to us why your prize doesn't contravene the Equality Act 2010. And Nikesh was absolutely devastated because from his point of view and from my point of view, you can't already tell, <laughs> it was, he felt like he was doing a good thing. He saw an industry that wasn't doing what it, its ideal, which was to publish points of view from... Britain as a whole, um, and to champion underrepresented voices. And he wanted to help the industry do that. And um, he was hit by a, uh, something, uh, a letter from the Equality and Human Rights Commission saying, justify why you're doing this. This is racist towards white people. Um, actually, that's not what the commission said verbatim, just um, paraphrasing here, right? Anyway, so they had to do all this heavy work. The commission investigated it and um, concluded, thank goodness, that actually this was a, a, this was a positive discrimination, not a negative discrimination. And um, a friend of a friend who actually, this MP, I'll tell you his name, I'm going to mention his name again, it's already been mentioned once here or tonight, Philip Davies MP, um, a constituent of, of his wrote a letter to him and said, Philip, I'm really disappointed. You know, you are an MP elected to represent this constituency. Why are you spending your time and sort of wasting your time with this, um, et cetera, et cetera? It's just very disappointing to see, given the broad-based factual stats about clear underrepresentation in publishing, to which, and I'm not quoting verbatim here, people, so just roll with me on this. Um, Philip Davies said... Um, Political correctness lefties like you are the reason why I will continue doing the kind of work that I'm doing, um, because this is clear discrimination against white people. Uh, he gave uh, comments very similar to The Guardian when they contacted him and asked him why he had made this complaint. And actually, complaints by him have, have actually got um, literary prizes geared towards rights of colour, shut down completely in the past. It, he successfully campaigned to shut down a literary prize for rights of colour in 2009. He successfully shut that down. So I think sometimes when people see the title of my book, they go, wow, oh my gosh, Rennie, isn't that, that's, that's very extreme, that's very extreme. 
But I wanted to tell you a little bit about that story, about some good-natured friends who were trying to champion writers who were not being heard, to really illustrate to you how frustrating it can be to, to attempt to do any sort of advocacy on this issue. There seems to be an understanding that we live in a meritocracy rather than we live in a society blighted by structural inequality. And if you believe that we live in a meritocracy, then any time anybody attempts to try and redress the balance of a grossly unequal status quo, you are pinpointed as the problem, you are pinpointed as the person who is creating divisions, uh, rather than the actual structural forces uh, of racism in this uh, instance. And, and that's certainly what I found years ago when I was involved in like left groups and feminist groups that were always almost overwhelmingly white. And I would point out, hey, it's, uh, you're all white here. I thought we're advocating for a better world and whatnot. Like, um, aren't you going to try and be a little bit more diverse, you know, especially based in London of all places? And I was told, no, Rennie, you're being divisive. By pointing out the problem, you actually are the problem. There is no problem. By mentioning race, you are the real racist. <laughs> and uh, it was in that context that I wrote um, the following, which was, this was published in 2014. I just published it on my website. And at this point, I was at a point of extreme emotional exhaustion. I wrote, I'm no longer engaging with white people on the topic of race. Not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. I can no longer engage with the gulf of an emotional disconnect that white people display when a person of color articulates their experience. You can see their eyes shut down and harden. It's like treacle is being poured into their ears, blocking up their ear canals. It's like they can no longer hear us. This emotional disconnect is a conclusion of living a life oblivious to the fact that their skin color is the norm and that all others deviate from it. At best, white people have been taught not to mention that people of color are different in case it offends us. They truly believe that the experiences of their life as a result of their skin color can and should be universal. I just can't engage with the bewilderment and the defensiveness as they try to grapple with the fact that not everyone experiences the world in the way that they do. They've never had to think about what it means, in power terms, to be white. So anytime they're vaguely remi reminded of this fact, they interpret it as an affront. Their eyes glaze over in boredom or widen in indignation. Their mouths start twitching as they get defensive, itching to talk over you but not really listen because they need to let you know that you've got it wrong. The journey towards understanding structural racism still requires people of color to prioritize white feelings. Even if they can hear you, they're not really listening. It's like something happens to the words as they leave our mouths and reach their ears. The words hit a barrier of denial and they don't get any further. That's the emotional disconnect. It's not really surprising because they've never known what it means to embrace a person of color as a true equal with thoughts and feelings that are as valid as their own. Watching The Color of Fear by Lee Manoir, I saw people of color break down in tears as they struggled to convince a defiant white man that his words were enforcing and perpetuating a white racist standard on them. All the while, he stared obliviously, completely confused by this pain, at best trivializing it, at worst ridiculing it. I've written before about this white denial being the ubiquitous politics of race that operates on its inherent invisibility. 
So I can't talk to white pe people about race anymore because of the consequent denials, awkward cartwheels, and mental acrobatics that they display when this is brought to their attention. Who really wants to be alerted to a structural system that benefits them at the expense of others? I can no longer have this conversation because we're often coming at it from completely different places. I can't have a conversation with them about the details of a problem if they don't even recognize that the problem exists. Worse still is the white person who might be willing to entertain the possibility of said racism, but who thinks we enter this conversation as equals. We don't. Not to mention that entering into conversation with defiant white people is frankly a dangerous task for me. As the heckles rise and the defiance grows, I have to tread incredibly carefully because if I express frustration, anger, or exasperation at their refusal to understand, they will tap into their pre-subscribed racist tropes about angry black people who are a threat to them and their safety. It's very likely that they'll then paint me as a bully or an abuser. It's also likely that their white friends will rally around them, rewrite history, and make the lies the truth. Trying to engage with them and navigate their racism is not worth that. Amid every conversation about nice white people feeling silenced by conversations about race, there is a sort of ironic and glaring lack of understanding or empathy for those of us who have been visibly marked out as different for our entire lives and live the consequences. It's truly a lifetime of self-censorship that people of color have to live. The options are speak your truth and face the reprisal or bite your tongue and get ahead in life. It must be a strange life, always having permission to speak and finally being, uh, feeling indignant when you're finally asked to listen. It stems from white people's never questioned entitlement, I suppose. I cannot continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across while also towing a very precarious line that tries not to implicate any one white person in their role of perpetuating structural racism, lest they character assassinate me. So I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I don't have a huge amount of power to change the, world, the world, change the way the world works, but I can set boundaries. I can halt the entitlement they feel towards me, and I'll start that by stopping the conversation. The balance is too far swung in their favor. Their intent is often not to listen or learn, but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me, and to rebalance the status quo. I'm not talking to white people about race unless I absolutely have to. If there's something like a media or a conference appearance that means that someone might hear what I'm saying and feel less alone, then I'll participate. But I'm no longer dealing with people who don't want to hear it, wish to ridicule it, and frankly, don't deserve it. Now, I've got a little bit of time left, and uh, I went totally off script. So uh, I'm going to tell you some interesting things about history. And I think that when I was in school, I was taught, taught about Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King and... Um, the Underground Railroad, but I didn't learn very much at all about black Britain and the civil rights struggle. In fact, I think part of this sort of willful ignorance and denial is a wholesale belief that there was never a race problem in Britain, that there wasn't a civil rights uh, struggle in Britain, and that, um, and, then it, and in that, you know, if you don't really understand the past, you can't understand today. So I'm going to tell you about one really interesting person, um, Paul Stevenson and the Bristol bus boycott. So. In 1963, uh, Jamaican Guy Bailey, he was Jamaican, he was 19 years old, he um, went to a job interview. And uh, 
This was in Bristol. It had about 3,000 strong black community at the time, but nobody was employed by the buses. And um, a lot of people in Bristol thought that this was very suspicious. And so a group of young men, um, buoyed by a youth walk worker called Paul Stevenson, um, decided to club together and put it to the test. So they arranged an interview for Guy over the phone. And... Um, it was like, yeah, yeah, cool, there's, there's definitely vacancies come down. But when Guy turned up for the interview, he was told there are no vacancies. And this is when this group of young men, who later called themselves the West Indian Development Council, they got to work. They immediately organised a press conference. They did a photo shoot, putting Guy at the back of the bus, like, like Rosa Parks. They were very media savvy. And um, they, made, they kicked up a, a stink about it. They won local and national press coverage. And, um, and what people in Bristol did, I'm going to call them Bristolians at this point, what the Bristolians did was um, they responded um, amazingly. Everybody started to boycott the bus service. Um, it got so bad that um, around the same time that Martin Luther King Jr. was delivering his I Have a Dream speech, um, the bus company backed down um, and, dis and they you know, got rid of their unofficial color bar, color bar and um, said that we will employ people on merit alone. Now, this is something that happened in many people's living memory. Uh, it's something that I didn't learn about until... I was working for a race equality think tank and I um, actually met Paul Stevenson. It was such an honor to meet him. And I wondered to myself, why were snippets of history um, being celebrated on a local level in Bristol, but not on a national level in the same way that we would um, you know, celebrate Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks? And I think I realized that that was part of the problem. And so I suppose if you go away from today feeling riled up by what I've said, um, then, then that's one thing that I would task you all to do, which is shout about these heroes. Shout about the fact that not only that they exist, but that the legacy of what they were fighting against still exists today. And I think it's very good to feel like you are a progressive person and you're, you're doing the work, but... But actually, I, I fear that there's been a level of complacency and a feeling that battles have already been won. And if the last, you know, year and a half has shown us anything, it's that, that actually we all need to sort of get to work on this. Um, and one, one line that I have in the book is that, you know, racism is something that has been foisted onto the shoulders of the people who are affected by it. But actually, if you feel that you are not affected by racism, then it's even more of your duty to speak up against it. So thanks very much.